0: So welcome, everyone, to the third part of the series on understanding the Mass. And it's always good for us to start with prayer, so let's go ahead and begin. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your many and abundant blessings throughout the entirety of our lives. We thank you especially for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, in the Most Holy Eucharist. We ask you to open our hearts and our minds to all that you wish to share with us during our third and final part of the series. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So uh, we might remember from previously that what the Mass is, is primarily the sacrifice of Christ on the cross being made present to us through sacramental signs at the altar, and that we, the mystical body of Christ, are to participate in that sacrifice using our baptismal priesthood uniting our hearts and our minds and all that we are and all that we have with Christ in the Eucharist, being offered by Christ in the priest to the Heavenly Father. And so recognizing that that is um, the primary point of the sacrifice of the Mass, that the Mass itself is a very important thing for us to know, because what we're going to cover in this session is that actual part, Um, The part of the Mass that makes it what it is, the Mass. Uh, We might also recall that when we talk about the Mass, um, it is based on Scripture. Uh, Almost everything that's said by the priest is something that's a direct quote or a paraphrase or an allusion to some passage in sacred Scripture. And that's true also with this part of the Mass. The least scriptural part of Mass is actually the homily and also the music. Um, And a lot of people give a lot of emphasis to those things. They're also less important than everything else that goes on in the celebration of the Mass. Um, So the Mass is biblical, and you might recall the books that I had shared previously, uh, the ones that I've shared from the previous sessions are there. I added a few more books to the table off to the side, uh, books that emphasize the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist, since that's an important point for our, our celebration Today, or well, I consider it a celebration. Some of you might consider it more like a lecture, but it's fun for me at least. Um, So, we know that Jesus is really present in the Eucharist because this is what sacred scripture tells us. We can look at the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they all say that Jesus took the bread and he said, This is my body. Not this symbolizes or this represents, but it is. And if we looked at the actual Greek The word for is there means equivalent or same as, equal to. And so when Jesus says, this is my body, he means it's the same as the body that they're seeing, his physical body. Uh, Likewise, with the precious blood. At the Last Supper, Jesus makes that really himself. Um, St. Paul also says that in 1 Corinthians. And then in the Gospel of John, we have John chapter 6, where Jesus calls himself the bread of life, and says in John 6, 53, Amen, Amen. I say to you, unless you eat the son of, the, unless you eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of Man, you will have no life within you. He's talking about eternal life. And when he says flesh and blood, he's referring to the Eucharist. But most of the people there don't understand what he's talking about. At least not until the Last Supper. And so in Scripture we have this. There's many other places in Scripture too. Uh, but those are the ones that I really like to highlight. That we believe that this really is Jesus, truly present in the Eucharist. And then we can look at the early church fathers, the original Christians, the ones right after the apostles. Like, what did they believe? Because uh, that would help us understand what Scripture meant. And they all say the same thing. Whether we look at St. Justin Martyr or St. Polycarp or St. Ignatius of Antioch or St. Irenaeus, they all say that the Eucharist really is Jesus. And then we also have the official teaching of the church. If we look at the church documents, they all say the same thing. um, That it really is Jesus. And in fact, the very first catechism, or the closest thing to a catechism that we have, is called the Didache. And it's from the first century. It's a very basic explanation of the faith. And in it, it talks about the celebration of the Mass. And it refers to the Eucharist as really being Jesus. Uh, But we can also move along through church history, and we can see different points where people start to question it. In the 11th century, it was popular to say maybe it's just a sign or symbol. The church condemned that as heresy. In the 16th century, when Martin Luther and others who tried to reform the church uh, tried to say that it wasn't really Jesus, um, the church infallibly declared it as really Jesus in the Council of Trent. And even if we look at our catechism that we have from St. John Paul II, um, then, in paragraph 1374, we're told yet again, it really is Jesus' body, blood, soul, and divinity. So, we have, we have church teaching, we have uh, scripture, we have the original Christians, the early Christians, they're all saying the same thing. Um, Jesus knows that it's still difficult for us to believe, and that's why he also gives us Eucharistic miracles. But that's a whole separate presentation. Some of you saw the, uh, the presentation I gave on my pilgrimage in Italy about Eucharistic miracles. But when people struggle to believe, sometimes our Lord does something miraculous with the Eucharist, not only makes it himself, but also does something extra. Maybe has it levitate or indent stone or turn to real human flesh and blood, um, things like that to help us understand it really is him. And so... It's important for us to accept that reality. Um, And that's a lot of why I do things the way that I do, because this is really the God of the universe. And what I do is going to reflect that, because I believe it to be true. Um, Again, if you want to try to follow along, you can open the hymnal uh, for the different parts of the Mass. Um, In the very front, we have the different uh, aspects of it. Today, we will be continuing where we left off. We had stopped with the Liturgy of the Word in our last session, so we are starting with the Liturgy of the Eucharist in this one. Liturgy of the Eucharist starts on page 11. So if you want to follow along in the hymnal, you can. So once we finish with the Creed, and we've had the petitions, and everyone sits down, we're, we're having the altar prepared. And what's going on, is obviously the different things from the credence table here off to the side are being brought to the altar so we can have the celebration of the mass. In the meantime, while the altar is being prepared, we have ushers coming forward, and they are taking a collection. We might think, well, why are we doing that? Like, why is that happening? Um, The collection is a sign, a visible sign, while we're here at mass, of what we should be doing spiritually. So I would mentioned before that spiritually we should be offering to God our very selves. And so it's, we see this in scripture all the way back in the Old Testament to make an offering of one's possessions to represent the whole of the person. And So when we have a collection at mass, it's a visible sign of what we should be doing spiritually, making our offering to God. And so um, making a financial offering also helps us against the false god of greed helps us to put things in the proper perspective that the one true God is God over all. Um, then, once we have the collection and the altar is set, we would have the procession of the gifts. Uh, and so, the whole community should be spiritually participating. And what's going on is that we have a small group of the, the congregation a few people carry up the bread, the wine, and the collection as a sign on behalf of the whole community making this offering to God. And the priest comes forward and he... Sometimes for daily mass, we would have a very short procession, just from the credence table to the altar, but it still symbolizes, uh, with the servers representing the community, the gifts of the people to God to be transformed into something greater. And so I, I teach the, uh, the servers to bring up the chalice first, the priest chalice. On top of the chalice, we have uh, the corporal. Usually I have two corporals because we also have the additional corporal for the community house. But um, I'm going to set things up a little bit off to the side, off center, which is a little awkward. But honestly, I don't like having my back directly to Jesus when we're not celebrating mass, so that's why I'm doing this off center, off to the side. So the first thing that goes down is the corporal because that's what everything else is gonna be placed on. If you remember from our first session, the corporal is there to catch any particles that fall, especially once Jesus is there after the consecration. And we have the Roman Missal that has all the instructions to the priests for what he's supposed to say and do during the celebration. And so the altar is prepared um, and then you would receive the gifts and bring the gifts up. So typically, with the gifts, we would have we would have a Saborium full of hosts. This one is empty because this isn't mass. Uh, and then we would also have a cuir with wine in. Uh, again, it's empty because we're not actually celebrating mass. But for the sake of learning, I at least have the particular vessels present. And so the priest, when he he comes and sets the altar, he takes the bread, the priest host, which is usually when I celebrate mass on a pattern, Some priests like to have the priest host just in the samborium and not use a paten. But either way, um, if you didn't notice from previous sessions, there are lots of options in the celebration of the mass. Um, so the priest would take the bread and he would have it on the paten, and he would pray a prayer and. This particular prayer, if it's a weekday, sometimes the people of God get to hear it. During Sundays, we typically have music going on, and so the people who come on Sunday don't hear this prayer. Um, the priest, even if there's no music, you can still say this quietly. It's optional, again, lots of options. But the prayer goes like this. As the priest is holding up the patent and he says, Blessed are you, Lord, God of all creation. For through your goodness we have received the bread we offer you. For to the earth the, Lord, the human." for us the bread of life. And during the weekday when we have this out loud, the people would respond, blessed be God forever. And then a very similar prayer is said with the chalice. But before that, we have the pouring of the wine into the chalice, and then with a separate current, which we'll just pretend this is a different one so I don't have to keep going up and down steps, the priest adds a little bit of water, just a tiny bit. We might wonder, well, why does he do that? a quiet prayer he or the deacon if there's a deacon present, he would do this and that prayer pretty much only the server misses here but the prayer goes like this by the mystery of this water and wine may we come to share the divinity of christ who humbled himself to share in our humanity so the the wine represents the divinity the water represents humanity Um, and what happens when the god of the universe becomes man he's got his infinite divinity Adding humanity to it. So we have a large portion of wine and we're adding a tiny drop of water into it. But we're reminded that the God of the universe became human so that human beings can be joined and united with God forever in heaven. So we want to share in that divinity of Christ. So once uh, once we have the wine and the water mixed with it, then there's another prayer uh, similar to the one that we said for the bread. Blessed are you, Lord God of all creation, but for your goodness we have received, the wine we offer Fruit of the vine, the work of human hands, and will become our spiritual bread. So in both cases, we're, we're blessing God, we're asking Him to prepare these things so that they can be transformed into the great gifts that He promised. The bread of life and our spiritual bread. Then the priest prays another quiet prayer as he bowed down, uh, typically only the server or the deacon gets to hear this. Uh, but the priest says quietly, with humble spirit and contrite heart, may we be accepted by you, O Lord, and may our sacrifice and your sight and day be pleased to you, Lord God. And after he does that, he then turns to the servers and then wash his hands. We talked a little bit about that in the first session. Uh, so they would pour the water, the priest would pray. It's a reminder that um, that we're about to enter into a very holy part of the Mass, um, and the priest is praying a quiet prayer again. Pretty much only the servers get to hear this. Wash me, O Lord, from my iniquities, and cleanse me from my sin. So even the priest is acknowledging he's not really worthy to do this, but God has called him to this, and so he's asking the Lord, and as he's symbolically washing his hands, that he be cleansed of sin. Then we have the all familiar phrase that I Pray, brothers and sisters, that by sacrifice and yours may be acceptable to God, the Almighty Father. Again, separate sacrifices, the sacrifice of the priest and the sacrifice of the people united to the sacrifice of the priest, which is the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And everyone responds, May the Lord accept the sacrifice into our hands for the praise and glory of his name for our good and good of all of this holy church. There's the reason why we celebrate. To glorify God in his holy name and then, secondarily, when we glorify God, when we praise Him, when we worship Him, we too are blessed. And not just us, but the entire Church is blessed. So after that, we enter into what's called the Eucharistic Prayer. Now this term can mean more than one thing. When we say the Eucharistic Prayer, um, it starts with a dialogue, the Lord with you and with your spirit. Recall that that particular phrase is a reference to the fact that the priest is ordained to serve the people and preside over the celebration in a unique way. So whenever in the Mass you hear the priest say that, uh, the Lord be with you, it's because we're about to do something important and you need the grace of God to do this, and everyone responds, and with your spirit, because the priest has a special spirit given to him through his ordination to serve the people. To emphasize that this is the most important part of the Mass that we're entering, priest then says, lift up your hearts. And everyone responds to lift them up to the Lord. Meaning, put away all distractions, don't think of anything else. This is the best part of the Mass. This is what makes Mass what it is. And so we need to lift our hearts and our minds to God. We need to be focused on God and not be distracted. And so that's what we mean at this point. And everyone respond, uh, responds "We lift them up to the Lord. So hopefully we mean that when we say that. Like we're... We, we were a little bit distracted earlier, but now we're really focused. I mean, hopefully we weren't distracted earlier, but this is really important because this is what makes fast what it actually is. So we have this exchange. And then, let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right and just. Um, the word thanks in Greek uh, is a variant on the word Eucharistia. And so that's actually where we get the word Eucharist, which is why we have this phrase in there we're giving thanks to God, we're giving Eucharistia to God, and eventually over time, um, they refer to it as Eucharistic bread, the Thanksgiving bread. But then we just kind of dropped the word bread and just kept Eucharist. And that's how we got that today. After we have this initial dialogue, we have what's called the preface. And so this is the preparation for the next part of the Eucharistic prayer. We just said that we're supposed to and that it is truly right and just to do so. But why? What in particular are we giving thanks for? Well, generally speaking, we're giving thanks for the sacrifice of Christ, the grace for salvation, but there's so many things to say thank you to God for that we have different preferences for different celebrations. And there's lots and lots of, of options of what can be said for the preface depending upon what kind of celebration we are entering into. So if we have a special feast day, if there's something um, unique that we're doing, uh, we might have a preface just for that one day, that one celebration. For example, uh, Christmas or Easter can have an explicit one for just itself, Or because those are seasons, those same uh, prefaces can be used multiple times. But if there was just like one celebration, like the celebration of the Trinity, it has its own preface. It's the only day of the year that we use that preface. And that's what we're focusing on, that's what we're giving thanks for. And so with the preface, there's a variety of what could be said. Uh, and there are multiple prefaces. For Advent, there's two of them. Preface one of Advent, preface two of Advent. Uh, but then there's multiple for Christmas because, uh, because it's a season. And then we have the preface of the Epiphany of our Lord, and uh, we use that on the celebration of the Epiphany. And then there's multiple prefaces for Lent, because that's a season, and so on and so forth. But the point of the preface is to help us put our hearts and minds and give thanks for whatever it is that we're celebrating that particular day or that season, uh, as we are moving forward with the celebration of the Mass and the celebration of the So we're given those specific things. Then we get to the Eucharistic prayer in a different sense. Uh, This would be the more particular part uh, where we have different options. And So if you look in the hymnal, you probably notice that it has the words for at least four different Eucharistic prayers. don't use any of those six Eucharistic prayers. They focus just on the first three. And Eucharistic prayer four is actually based on the Eastern Rite Catholic churches. There's, I think, 26 of them. And um, Eucharistic prayer four has a lot of limitations to when it can be used, and so most priests don't use that one either. Which leaves us with just three that are commonly used for the celebration of mass. And of those three, the church tells us that Eucharistic prayer one is always suitable and appropriate for use. And it tells us it's especially good to use it when it's a major celebration. It's especially good to use it when we have a saint's feast day where that saint is listed in a Eucharistic prayer. It's especially good to use it on Sundays. Uh, so the church is telling us that Eucharistic prayer one is really the best out of all the Eucharistic prayers. We are permitted to use the other ones, but in the documents, in the general structure of the Roman Missal, um, the church is telling us Eucharistic prayer one is the best. And so I'll just take us through Eucharistic prayer one and explain parts of it as we go. So we start by addressing the Heavenly Father. Some people don't recognize this, but when the priest is praying as part of the Mass, He's not talking to the people. He is talking to the heavenly God. And so when I am celebrating this part of the Mass, you might notice I'm either looking at the book or I'm looking like above everybody because I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to God. And if I looked at you, but I was talking to God, you might think I'm talking to you. In fact, in my last parish, some, uh, a parishioner came up to me and when he found out that the Eucharistic Prayer was being addressed to God and not to the people, that was a revelation to him. He had never known that before. But I mean, all we have to do is look at the words, and it's very clear. To you, therefore, most merciful Father. So we, so the priest is not talking to the people. He's talking to God the Father. We make humble prayer and petition through Jesus Christ, your Son. Again, talking to the Father, not to the people. It can be confusing, though, because the priest is now facing the people. Prior to the Second Vatican Council, the priest would always be facing Jesus in the tabernacle when he's at the altar, rather than facing the people. Why? Because he's talking to God, and Jesus is God and he's right there. Uh, So why did they bring the priest and have him physically face the people? The thought was maybe the people could better enter into the mystery if they could see what's happening at the altar. And some people like it. Some people um, think that it's more appropriate for the priest to face God as is talking to God. Um, the priest is also leading the people to God. And so if you imagine like we were on a hike, if I'm facing you, I'd be walking backwards. Like, that's probably not safe. But um, that's one way of thinking about the situation. Uh, however, it's become very common for the priest to be facing the people to allow them to see what's happening at the altar. And so that's why uh, it's very common for us to do that even today. But it is an option, according to the general instruction of the Roman Missal, for the priest to face God as he's talking to God. But in Eucharistic prayer, he's talking to God, not to you. So when I pray this part of the Mass, I'm either looking at the book or I'm looking above everybody's heads because I'm talking to God. And rather than look at you, I don't want you to be confused and think I'm talking to you because I'm not at this part of the Mass. And so at this part, we're asking that God accept and bless these offerings. So the priest makes the sign of the cross to bless what was being prepared and prepared This language all over, and that's what the Mass is, the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. So this Eucharistic prayer makes very clear what we're doing, that this is a sacrifice. So these uh, these Holy and unblemished sacrifices, and the priest, when he has his hands out like this, um, this is called the Oron's position. It's the position the priest pray, takes when he's praying uh, on behalf of all of the people. He takes this position. It also means that uh, it's the position of Christ on the cross with his hands outstretched as he's praying to the Heavenly Father. So the priest, when he's doing this, he's being Jesus for us, and he's praying to the Heavenly Father like Jesus on the cross. So, uh, which we offer you firstly for your Holy Catholic Church, and please grant your peace, to guard and to government throughout the whole world. So we're praying for the church. Already mentioned that this offering is to the Father, so we're glorifying God and then we're also recognizing the church benefits from it together with your servant Francis, our Pope, and Mitchell, our Pope. So, this is how we show the universi- universality of the church. We're connected to all the other Catholic churches through these individuals and we're naming them in the Mass. So, we have the same Pope, Francis. So we're united with everyone else who's united to Pope Francis. And in the particular Church of St. Louis, we mention our Bishop, Mitchell. It's Archbishop Mitchell Rosansky in the celebration of Master Jesus' first name. And so we mention him because we, Emmanuel Monroe, are united to the rest of the Catholic Church in the St. Louis area through Archbishop Mitchell Rosansky. So every Eucharistic prayer, we have the specific name and Bishop, And then we also mention we're united to everyone else. And all those who look to the truth and on the Catholic and Apostolic faith. And then we say, remember Lord, your servants, and there's a pause. At this point in the Mass, we're pausing so that you can think of the people that you want to present to God during the celebration of the Eucharist. This is for the sake of those who are alive. There's another section and a brief pause later where we remember those who have passed from this life and present them to God. But at this point, there's a pause, remember Lord your servants, and there's a pause so that you can present to God in the silence of your hearts, all those that you want to hold up to him in prayer. And it's at this point that I'd like to insert the particular priestly intention for the celebration of that particular mass and so this is just a little cut out from the, uh, the bulletin it's kept near the missile um, so that uh, i can see who i'm celebrating the mass for and then i say that in particular the reality is um, all of you likewise get to make an offering for a particular intention because you are making Remember, my sacrifice and yours? So all of you are making an offering at Mass. So your participation in the sacrifice, you get to have a particular intention for yourself. This intention is the priestly intention, the one that the priest was asked to offer the Mass for. But everybody, using their baptismal priesthood, gets to have an intention for the Mass as well. And so at this point, I mention that priestly intention, and then I continue on with the and all those gathered here whose devotion are known to you, for them we offer you this sacrifice of praise, that they offer for themselves and all who are dear to them, right? for the redemption of their souls to help and for the health well-being, paying your homage to the eternal God, living and true. So again, lots of sacrificial language. And we notice what are some of the things that we're asking of God. The certain kinds of things that we're asking for uh, are for
1: ourselves,
0: for the redemption of our souls. We want to be redeemed. We want to be forgiven of our sins. And Christ means that grace for us in his sacrifice. So
1: that's why we're doing this. But we're also
0: paying homage to God. We're also showing our love and our respect and our devotion to him. In communion with those whose memory we venerate, especially the glorious Ever Virgin Mary, Mother of our God and Lord Jesus Christ, and blessed Joseph, our spouse. So we start listing saints. Because we're united with the saints. We are the mystical body of Christ. We are the church. There's a union with all of the saints that's taking place. So we're reminded of that reality by listing the saints. We're also reminded of our connection with those who are in heaven. And um, we're reminded in this first set, this litany of saints, uh, in particular the apostles and martyrs. And then we start naming them. So the first ones that you hear, those are the apostles. Then we start naming the martyrs. And the first martyrs that we're listing are actually the first popes after Peter. So Peter and Paul, Andrew, James, John, Thomas, James, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Simon, and Jude. Notice we didn't mention Judas, just Jude. Because Judas betrayed Jesus. And so we're not sure where he is, but it's likely it's not heaven. So we don't mention him, but we mention the others. Linus, Titus, 6, Cornelius, Cyprian. Again, these are the first posts following Peter. And then we mentioned some of the martyrs. Lawrence was a deacon, um, and he uh, died for our Lord. And likewise, the others, Cosmos and Damian, they were both doctors uh, who became Christian and were offering their services for free in Rome. Um, and they were put to death because they were Christian. Uh, and then, because there are thousands of we just kind of summarize them all. And all your sins. Uh, we ask that through their merits and prayers and all things we may be defended by your protection, power. So we're saying that we're offering this to God not just on our own, but in union with all of these saints as well. And their good works in their intercession. Therefore, Lord, we pray graciously accept the salvation of our servants. We're talking about sacrifice um, in that of all the church community, our whole Christian family, uh, that we want peace, and that we want to be delivered from eternal damnation. We're recognizing in this Eucharistic prayer that hell is real and people do go there. And we don't want to be some of the people who do that. So we are recognizing that and we're asking to be delivered. And we're celebrating this Mass because this is how Jesus gave us the grace and sacrifice on the cross in order for us to be saved. So we want that grace to to ourselves and for us to be counted among His flock. So Jesus calls Himself the Good Shepherd. We're using that kind of language here. The flock of His chosen ones. Those who are redeemed, those who are saved, those who go to heaven. Be pleased, O oh God, we pray to bless the knowledge of the offering that may become come for us, the body and blood of your most beloved Son, our Lord, Jesus Christ. So as I say those words, my hands are kind of over the gifts like this. And why do I do that? It's because I'm calling upon the Holy Spirit to come down and infuse these things, the bread and wine, to become the body and blood of Jesus Christ. But not just his body and blood, his body, blood, soul, and divinity, the whole and entirety of Jesus, his real presence. So this ingredient is called the epiclesis, the calling upon the Holy Spirit. And he has his hands down like that. So this is getting we're starting the process for for the bread and wine to become Jesus. On the day before he was to suffer, he took bread in his holy and venerable hands, and with eyes raised to heaven, to you, O God, his Almighty Father, giving you thanks, he said the blessing, broke the bread and gave it to So at this point, we're calling the Last Supper. So we are reminded of why we're celebrating the Mass, we're reminded that this is through Jesus, we're wanting this to become Jesus, and now we're going to the Last Supper where Jesus had his first Mass so that he, through the priest, can say the same words and have the same effect. And so the priest, um, as he's saying these words, as he says, took the bread, picks up the bread, and he holds it. And then he raises his eyes to heaven, because this is what Jesus did, is what we say in the words, with his eyes raised to heaven. Why is he raising it to heaven? Because he's talking to the Father. He's not talking to the disciples, but then he's talking to the Father. And so Jesus did that and gave thanks and blessed it and broke the bread. And then we get the words consecration. Jesus actually becomes present, and in these words, he tells them to take it, to eat it, and he says, "This is my body, which will be given up for you." And so, uh, I don't know. Maybe they do it in the hymnal, but in the Roman Missal, they take these very special words, and they're in they're in all caps. So you can even see that in the hymnal; it's in all caps. So it's being set aside by These words that consecrate the bread into the body of Christ is necessary for Jesus to become present. These words are necessary for this to be mass. And likewise with the words for the consecration of the wine into the precious blood. It's in all caps. Why? These are set aside, they're special. Without these words, it's not mass. And so because they're special, because they're unique, I slow down and I soften my voice as I say these words. This is the holiest part of mass. This is what makes mass what it is. And so that's why I say it so slowly when we get to this part. And after the consecration of the bread into the body of Christ, uh, then I continue. In a similar way, when supper was ended, he took this chalice in his, in his holy and venerable, he took this precious chalice in his holy and venerable hands, and once more, given Have the words of consecration for the wine into the precious water. But I want to highlight what's being said here. Notice I said he took this precious chalice. This precious chalice. If we look at all the other Eucharistic prayers, none of them say this. Why does Eucharistic Prayer 1 say this? The reason, according to tradition, is because this is St. Peter's Eucharistic Prayer. This is what he said. He had Jesus' chalice. He took it with him to Rome. So when he celebrated Mass and he said this chalice, he meant it. He was holding the chalice Jesus used at the Last Supper. This chalice. And so Eucharistic Prayer 1 is Peter's Eucharistic Prayer. So we have a unique connection to the first pope to St. Peter himself. Now, over the years, little additions, modifications took place, but Eucharistic Prayer 1 uh, has evidence that this is from Hebrew. There's also the structure. The structure is that of the first century um, Jewish composition. So the Jews would often say something, and then they would say it again. So you have, have like this sandwich effect, you've got the two pieces of bread, you've got the meat in the middle. So, if we look early on, we would notice, yeah, there's a litany of saints. If we look a little later, and we get together, we will, there's another litany of saints. And if we look in the middle, what's in the middle? That's the most important part. That's the meat of the sandwich. What's in the middle? The consecration. The consecration. The real presence of Jesus being made for us here at the altar. What we have in the middle, is what makes mass, the meat of the salmon. And so first century composition also supports the tradition that this was written by Peter himself. So then we have the words of consecration for uh, the chalice and the precious blood. We're reminded in it that Jesus is establishing a new and eternal covenant. New and eternal. So if we remember there's an old covenant, the one Moses established, for the Jewish people. And then there's a new covenant, the one that Jesus established. Should we expect another one? No. Why? eternal covenant. This is the last one. There will not be another covenant. So we can go back in sacred scripture and we can say, God had a covenant with Adam and Eve. God had a covenant with Noah. God had a covenant with Abraham. God had a covenant with David. Yes, and each covenant we get a little bit closer to the one that God wanted to give us from the beginning. The new and eternal covenant the one that jesus gives us and what is this covenant about it's about pouring out his blood giving up his life for our salvation for the forgiveness of sins and then here's a line that i i like to highlight do this in memory of me do this in memory of me what are we supposed to do celebrate mass he didn't say read sacred scripture he didn't say uh, praise and worship music. He didn't say have great homilies or sermons or speeches and talk about me. He said do this in memory of me. Celebrate Mass in memory of me. Why? Because it's not just memory. He really becomes present. He wants to be among us in a physical and real way. He wants an intimacy that's not possible any other way. And So he does. Do this in memory of me. So we then declare the mystery of our faith. This is a mystery. Bread and wine between the body and blood of Jesus, the God of the universe, loved us so much that his sacrifice was present. You might wonder, how is this sacrifice being made the present? Did you notice we had two separate consecrations? First, we had the consecration of the body, the bread into the body. Then, we had the consecration of the wine into the blood. What are we symbolizing? What are we representing here Think to yourself, what happens if your body and blood are separated? You die. So, Jesus gave <laughs> up his life on the cross, he died. So through separate consecrations, we have the death of Christ being made present to us. Even though he is fully and completely present in both species, body, blood, and in and unity. So then we proclaim the mystery of faith. And as you guess, there's different options. Uh, I oftentimes like to use the first one. We proclaim your death for the Lord and profess your resurrection until you come again. During Lent and Easter, I like to use the last one of the three. Save us, Savior of the world, for by your cross and resurrection, you have set us free. If you want to know where we're manifesting and making present the connection between heaven and earth and how they collide, it's right here. What did I just say? I said, Have your angel take these gifts and take them to heaven. Why? Because what's happening here is a glimpse of what's happening in heaven. Heaven and earth meet in the celebration of the Mass. And so, this offering of Christ in the Eucharist is being brought up into heaven at this point. That's what we just said. But notice I also said, so that all of us who through this participation, participation, you're participating, nor making an offering too, in union with this offering. So it's not just, oh, Father's praying, well, but no, you should be making your offering. is running through a list, presenting them to God, of all your deceased family and friends who you want to remember at this particular celebration of the Mass, and sharing them with the Lord. And so there's that brief pause for you to have that private personal prayer, and then you continue. Grant, O Lord, pray created all who seek in Christ a place of refreshment, light, and peace. So not just the ones that we just privately mentioned in our hearts and in our minds, but also everybody who died, everybody who's in purgatory. We want everyone in purgatory to go to heaven. So I was concelebrating celebrating uh, the Mass of the Lord's Supper at one of my previous parishes. And when I prayed this part, because when you have more than one priest celebrating Mass, um, different priests do different parts of the universe of prayer. So when I was praying this part, one of the parishioners actually saw four souls rising from the ground and up towards heaven. I didn't see that, but he did, and he told me about it afterwards, and I thought, that's pretty cool, like, that's what we just prayed for, right, and he actually got to see it somehow, got to see four souls go up to heaven, awesome, but here, not only in petitions, but even here, in this part of the mass, we're praying for everyone in purgatory that they would be able to go to heaven. To us also, chest, just like we said in the previous session. Why do we do that during the confiteor? It's a reminder that we're sinners, we're repentant, we're sorry, and the priest is acknowledging that truth of himself at this point. And we do this in hope of more abundant mercy. Gracious hands of sharing fellowship with the the apostles and martyrs, with John the Baptist, Stephen, right? Matthias, this. So now we're remembering the apostles and martyrs again, but we're using a different list, a second litany of sins. It's like, why are we doing it again? Because this is a Jewish composition. Peter was Jewish. And this is what they do, because they don't have paragraphs. Actually, if you go back to the Jewish language, they didn't have paragraphs, they didn't have spaces, they didn't have punctuation, and they didn't have vowels. Try reading without all of those things. Like, that would be super hard, right? But that's what they did. And so how is it that they mark off different parts of their thoughts? Well, they just repeat themselves. So we have a little new we have a little of saints now, and what's in the middle is the most important part. It's a first century Jewish composition. But we're going to list different, uh, we're going to list other saints this time. So Ignatius, Alexander, Marcelinus, Peter, Felicity, Perpetua, Agnes, Anastasia and other So these are um, saints in the early uh, church. Uh, most of them are around With them in heaven. We want to be a part of what that heavenly celebration of Mass. And so we're asking for that grace. And then uh, sometimes when people aren't used to university to prayer one, when I get to that point, I say through Christ our Lord. That's kind of like a Catholic trigger word, and everyone just says, Amen. Um, so sometimes what happens is that happens if they are not used to university prayer one. So I, I try to actually move very quickly at that point. So I say, Through Christ our Lord, through whom we can. Continue to make all these good things, O Lord, you sanctify the them of life lesson and then bestow them upon So that people don't have the opportunity to say them. because they're not supposed to say in that part. But they think they did. They think they're supposed to because it's those trigger words through Christ's cover. Everyone goes in. But not this time. So I, I try to go really fast to that point and go to the next line. Uh, so that people don't make that mistake. So we're asking again for additional lessons. And then in this part, of the doxology. Where we're actually manifesting the offering, so the priest takes these things from the altar and he's holding them up to God the Father, and if there's a deacon, the deacon holds it too, holding it up to God the Father, because we're making the offering. Here you go, God the Father, we're offering you Jesus in the Eucharist, and so during that point we got the words through Him, with Him, and in Him. O God, Almighty. So that's the Eucharistic Prayer. And that's Eucharistic Prayer 1. It has the special elements. Again, there are other Eucharistic prayers for pastoral reasons. People can choose to use them, and that's okay. Uh, but after the Eucharistic prayer, we then go into the communion rite. And so uh, it's been common, even from the first century, to talk about Holy Communion. And sorry, I got so There's lots of things that can be said about the Our You might wonder, well, where does that part come from? Uh, it's an allusion to different parts of sacred scripture. We actually find it in the Didache, uh, but it's not in the oldest passages of sacred scripture that we can find. So some Christians, they include that whenever they pray to Our Father. It's a part of the liturgy, the earliest Christian celebration of the mass, but it's not found immediately following the Our Father in the Gospel of Matthew or in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, but someone thought it was missing so they added it in uh, to the bible but it's actually its first appearance is in the didache the the very first catechism of the first century document Um, then we continue with the celebration Uh, we remind how jesus told them and give them his peace and then the priest says to Optional. So you might remember when there was consideration of the pandemic, there were some parishes, and I don't know if this one was one of them, some parishes that omitted the sign of peace. They didn't have it because they wanted to avoid the spreading of germs. It's optional. It's not required. But with the sign of peace, what are we doing? We're trying to fulfill what Jesus told us to do in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 23 to 24, where he says that we need to forgive everybody before approaching the altar. So when we're exchanging the sign of peace, the person next to you is not just, you're not saying just peace to that person, but to the, you're saying peace to the person you need to forgive most. And you're using the one next to you to be that proximate standing. Because Jesus tells us in the Gospel of Matthew, we need to be forgiving everyone to be forgiven in order to approach the altar. So we fulfill that at this point with the sign of peace. But that's an optional part of the celebration. Um, at this point in the Mass, the priest is also fracturing the host, and he takes a tiny little piece, and he drops it into the precious blood. So we might think, well, why does he do that? Well, he's privately praying, and he, the priest, uh, says this quietly, and he can overhear it, and if the servers are close enough, they it too. He says, may this mingling of the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ bring eternal life to us who are So if the separate consecrations represented the crucifixion, the death of Christ, then if body and blood are recombined, we're expressing the resurrection at this point in the Mass. The combination of his body and his blood. Then we say the Lamb of God, you take away the sins of the world. We say that multiple times. Uh, John says that in his Gospel and in the book of Revelations. In the book of Revelations, John refers, refers to Jesus as the Lamb of God 28 in the Mass, we only call him the Lamb God four times, uh, typically. And then the priest has a private prayer that he prays, um, and it goes like this, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the God, by the will of the Father and the work of the Holy Spirit, through your death, give life to the world. Free me by this, most holy body and blood, from all my sins from every evil. Keep me always faithful to your commandments, and never let me be parted from you. And then he genuflects, and then he gets back up, and then he holds the host for everyone to see says, quoting scripture, quoting John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God, behold him who takes away the sins of the world. And then quoting Revelation, uh, blessed are those who come to the supper of the Lamb. Blessed are those who are called to the supper of the Lamb. And we all say, Lord, I am not worthy that you shall enter under my roof, but only say the word and my soul shall be healed. We're quoting a centurion who said to Jesus, only say the word and my servant will be It's like, you don't need to go there in person. You don't need to actually physically touch him. All you have to do is command, and it will happen. And I believe that. And Jesus says to that response, uh, nowhere in in Israel have I found such faith. But he found it in the centurion. So why are we quoting the centurion? We're supposed to have that same faith, a strong, profound faith that this is Jesus. And if he enters under our roof, Jesus is truly present in the Eucharist, He enters under the roof of our mouth, If He enters under our our roof, then our souls can heal. It's our soul that's most important. The condition of our soul determines our eternal destination. The condition of our body, not as important. There are many saints who suffered a lot physically, and they went to heaven because their soul was closely united to God. The soul is important for our eternal destination, not the body. The priest has a couple more private prayers before he receives Holy Communion, and then um, we have Holy Communion in the usual way. Um, so there's a lot that can be said about Holy Communion, uh, but I'm going to make it very brief because uh, we're pretty close to the hour at this point. Um, so with Holy Communion, we're receiving the God of the universe. When we come down the main aisle, it's like the wedding procession. We're the bride of Christ, and now we're meeting. And so we're supposed to be focused on Jesus, not looking at other people, not thinking about what other people may say or do. We're supposed to focus on Jesus and prepare ourselves to receive him. Husband and wife give themselves fully and completely to each other in the marital grace. In holy communion, we're supposed to give ourselves fully and completely to God, who gives himself fully and completely to us. And so we're supposed to be well disposed, ready to receive the Lord. We're also supposed to be free from all the mortal sins. If we've done some serious sins, we need to go to the confession first, uh, receive his mercy and forgiveness, and then receive him in the Holy Communion. Um, if you want to know why, I would say look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27 to 30, where St. Paul tells us that people were physically getting sick and dying because they were receiving Holy Communion unworthily. So more can be said about that, but I'll just move on because uh, I want And give me the opportunity to ask questions. So there's two ways to receive Poly Communion. Um, You can receive Holy Communion in the hand. This is actually by exception. This is not the rule, this is not the universal norm. To receive in the hand is special permission that was allowed uh, by exception to the United States uh, and to any bishop who accepts that invitation to allow that option. The universal norm, according to all the church documents, is still to and on the tongue. Prior to the Second Vatican Council, everyone had to kneel and receive on the tongue. But by special permission, people can stand and receive in the hand. Um, If you choose to receive in the hand, uh, please put one hand over the other. Don't do side by side because, look, Jesus can fall through if you go side by side. Don't do side by side. One hand over the other. Hold it flat so that when Jesus is placed on your hand, he doesn't fall off. And then you use your other hand, typically the dominant hand, to pick up our Lord and place him in your mouth. So if you're going to receive in the hand, do it that way. And if you're going to receive in your hand, look at your hand and make sure that Jesus is now gone. Because sometimes the host, they can have little particles fracture or break off, and you just had him on your hand. So if he was on your hand, check your hand and see if any of Jesus is still there. Even the tiniest little particle is still the God of the universe. The size of a crumb says size, quantity. It doesn't say quality. It doesn't say substance. It doesn't say what it is. Whether we have a loaf of bread or a slice of bread, what is it? It's bread. So if bread became the god of the universe and we have a crumb on our hand, it's still Jesus. So you want to consume that tiny little crumb, too. And then you want to check your fingers. You probably notice I do this a lot. Why do I do this? Because I have crumbs of Jesus on my fingers. I don't want you to go anywhere else. I want you to stay on my fingers so i keep my hands like this until i purify them until water is rub- poured over them and i rub my fingers together so that the particles end up in the chalice and then are consumed in the process of purification we also have what's called an evolution dish so um, i can take my fingers dip them into the water rub them together so that any particles any crops will land in the evolution dish and then I Water long enough, it dissolves. So what happens to the eucharist when it sits in water long enough? It dissolves, and once it no longer has the appearance of bread, Jesus is no longer there. But it once was, was Jesus, and so we have a special sink in the sacristy called the aquarium, and we pour it down that, and it goes straight into the ground. Why? Well, what do we do when anyone else passes from this life? We take what remains and we bury it in the ground. So what once was Jesus, what remains is buried in the ground by going down the special sink directly into the ground not to the sewer, because this was Jesus, and we're going to reference that reality. So, it's another reason why I purify at the altar to show you that this is really Jesus. I had Jesus on my fingers, he's now in the chalice, because water was poured over it, I'm going to consume Jesus, because he gave himself into the Eucharist for that purpose primarily, secondarily adoration, but primarily for communion, and then, We purified that too. So, after Holy Communion, the God of the universe is inside of you. You are a walking tabernacle, and there is no way you can be physically closer to the Lord here on this earth than having him inside of you. So, this is the best time for you to have an intimate conversation with the Lord as you are going back to the clues. And as you're in the clues, to pray, to talk to the Lord who is within you. It takes approximately 15 minutes for the Eucharist to dissolve within the human body. So, for approximately 15 minutes, you're a walking tabernacle. The physical presence of the Lord is gone once the Eucharist is dissolved within your digestive system, but the spiritual presence of the Lord should be increased if you are well. back in the chair. I stand up and I say, let us pray. We have the prayer. And then that's it. The liturgy of the Eucharist is finished. And at that point, we can have announcements. You know, some priests, they're like, well, everyone's already kind of sitting anyway. Might as well keep them sitting and have the the announcements and then do the prayer. That's not actually liturgically appropriate. Because now we're mixing rites and parts of the liturgy and that shouldn't happen. Uh, But not every priest knows that so we have the prayer after communion first and then we have announcements and after announcements we have the concluding rites we have a special blessing so we have the familiar words Lord be with you and with your spirit why the priest is going to do something priestly he's going to bless everybody and so we're going to point that out yet again and then we have the blessing and after the blessing we have the dismissal and with the dismissal um, we are being sent out on mission in latin And we actually get the word mass from Misa, uh, because we are being sent out, we are being told to use what we've received, the grace that we have gotten from the celebration of the mass and bring it into the rest of the world, bring it into our daily lives, share what we have with everybody else. So I know I ran a little bit over, but um, I would still like to take any questions that anyone might just a few brief questions and then we'll close. Yes. I have like to actually my mm-hmm. first comment. It used to be that you weren't supposed to be an hour research. And my other question was um someone? Okay, so there's a question uh in- Yes.